It's time to think bigger. Elias Pedersen scores! And think bolder. Matthew Kachuk, what a goal! This is Rintoul and Sermon. Another chance, great save by Markstrom. There is shot me back, great save by Timko. On the Sportsnet Radio Network. What's going on? How's your Monday? Hope it's off to a great start. We're going to make your day better. That's what we do. You can get in on the conversation at any time, 960-960 or 650-650. Jamie on Friday. Jamie Dodd alongside me again here this week. Jamie, on Friday I said to you, okay, how many of these NFL games have juice? And we went through. Well, I can tell you this. This show has so much juice after what happened on the weekend. Would you not agree, sir? <laughs> It was a busy, busy, busy sports weekend, Scotty. Absolutely it was. We knew it would be with the opening of the NFL season, the first NFL Sunday at least going down. But, yes, plenty of juice going into Monday this week. I don't want to get off on a rant here, as Dennis Miller would say, but Mondays I almost find more difficult because there is so much information to process. There's data flying at you all over the place. There's so many games in the weekend. Sometimes it's difficult to pare it down. Jamie, we're going to do our best over the next few hours to get to the important stories, the things that we thought mattered the most. There's a lot to choose from here. This is a statement or a question, I suppose, that you can take a lot of different ways. Jamie, what is the most impressive thing that you saw over the last two and a half, three days of sports? Okay, so I'm going to go away from what I think are probably the headlining sports for a lot of our listeners. There was a lot of sports going on. I think most people probably most locked in on the NFL certainly yesterday, as well as the tennis going on at the U.S. Open. But just in terms of most impressive for me, I'm going to go to baseball. I'm going to go to the Blue Jays, not their entire series against Baltimore, but specifically the stretch in which they put up 27 runs in a four-inning span across two games against the Baltimore Orioles. So 27 runs in four innings. They had 11 in the seventh, the final inning of uh, of Saturday's doubleheader, of a second leg of that one, and then 5-1 and 10 in the first three innings yesterday to win three of four in Baltimore and completely paced them in the final few games there. So In terms of what impressed me the most, what kind of took my breath away the most, that stretch of offense from the Blue Jays is what did it. Yeah, it's a decent show out there, Jamie. I could see people going that direction. The power on display and the runs that were scored when it looked like the Jays were going to screw things up against the Orioles on a couple of occasions. I can understand why you went that way. It's not where I'm going. I'm staying in the same sport, though, and that's tough to do after what we saw in the NFL on opening weekend because we're going to get there in just a second. The most impressive thing I saw this weekend, Francisco Lindor last night against the New York Yankees. For those who missed it, for those who chose not to tune into any Sunday night baseball because you got your fix of the NFL and maybe you were still dining on that and still processing it, Francisco Lindor hit three home runs last night against the New York Yankees to win the game. And it's impressive in and of itself just to have three home runs in the game. But the stage that he did it on and the drama that surrounded it, Jamie, that's what made it so impressive for me. So Lindor, he hits in the second inning a bomb. He puts his club up 4-2. to two. Things are off to a pretty good start for him. And what are you going to say the next time he comes up? Hey, be careful with Lindor. So he walks in his next plate appearance. His third plate appearance, Francisco Lindor, he goes yard. Or probably, I guess that would have been his fourth appearance. What he did after hitting the second home run was chirp the Yankees' dugout. Now, there had been allegations. This goes back to Saturday night. There had been allegations 
that the Yankees were using whistles in their dugout to tip some pitches. And that sort of came out after the game on Saturday. Ah, whatever. People say things. Lindor, as he's going around the bases, starts whistling at the Yankees' dugout. Okay? They take note of it. Giancarlo Stanton comes up later in the game, hits a home run, and he gets into it on his way around the bases with Lindor, Jamie, to the point where the bench is clear. So they got out there on the field. So what does Lindor do? He's already hit two home runs in the game. There's some heated, heated things going on between the two teams right now. He hits a third home run in this game. The Mets win. The ball ends up in his glove for the final out of the game as well as he catches a pop-up just behind third base. Francisco Lindor, the show he put on on Sunday Night Baseball last night, yeah, that's the most impressive thing I saw. What a few weeks for Lindor and the New York Mets, Ooh. right? It wasn't that long ago. He was given the thumbs down to his own fans, getting booed off the field. They had to hold a team meeting. He had to apologize. The owner got involved, right? And that was Javi Baez as well, but it was Lindor was in on that as, in on that too, you know? And it, it's just a remarkable to go from that to being part of that. And, you know, it seemed like their entire season was crumbling. Everyone was turning against them to having a signature moment like that against the Yankees of all teams, your crosstown rivals, the big bad Yankees to damage their playoff chances as well. It's a good choice, Scotty. It's a really good choice because you're right. The stage and the theatrics it all happened with were really cool. And there's a lot to choose from. I got to see live and in person a 115-yard missed kick return for a touchdown at BC Place on Saturday night. I got to see Terry McLaurin yesterday make one of the most incredible catches I've ever seen in the NFL. But I went with Lindor. There's probably people out there shouting, how are you not starting with football? Well, we will. But I had to ask Jamie his most impressive thing from the weekend. We did the same. You can text us yours at 650-650-960-960. There are very few that would argue. If you step back and you take your bias out of it, Jamie, that the game of the weekend, bar none, with all due respect to what happened on Thursday night because we went over that, if we're focusing on the NFL weekend, Cleveland-Kansas City felt like an instant classic, didn't it? Yeah, that's the game of the, of the weekend. The game of Sunday, no doubt about it. And it looked like it going in, right? If you would if you had to pick one game to watch on Sunday, that's probably the one you would have picked, you know, taking rooting interests out of it, and it lived up to it. It was the game of the weekend. We're going to talk about three games here. We're not going to get through the full NFL slate in the opening segment. We're going to talk about three games, and there's a commonality to me in all three games. There's a definable turning point in all three. Cleveland impressed me from the jump. They march down the field. They score a touchdown, Jamie. And it's not just that they went for it on fourth down, kept that drive alive, something that would be a continuing theme throughout the day. Hey, we're going to be aggressive early, foot on the gas. We can't settle for field goals against these guys. If we're going to be Kansas City in Kansas City, we have to come out here, be aggressive with a capital A, maybe the entire word in caps. They went for it on fourth down. They went two-point convert early. They were pushing the Chiefs around for the bulk of the first three quarters. Yeah, they were really doing what they wanted to on offense. And, I mean, that running game, we know how dangerous it can be with the one-two punch of Nick Chubb and Kareem Hunt. And they are having their way with them, right? Like, Kansas City didn't have an answer early in that game, especially on the ground. Mayfield was making some plays in the pocket as well, but it was the running game that really stood out. And you're right, pushing them around. They were the ones setting the tempo and setting the energy of that game in Kansas City. And I loved 
the aggression early in the game on the first drive, recognizing we're the underdogs here. They have Patrick Mahomes. We know what they can do on offense. We're not settling for a field goal. We're going to go for it. And it paid off, and I think that's exactly the mindset and the mentality that teams have to have when they're going into Kansas City. Yeah, they were doing the two things you have to do against Kansas City. You need to hold on to the ball so that Patrick Mahomes and the Chiefs are sitting there on the sideline, and you got to score sevens, or in the case of their first touchdown, eights. They were ultra-aggressive. Their game plan was very, very balanced, and yet the turning point of this game for me, and you can disagree with me if you feel like it, Jamie, because all of the points didn't come off of this, but here I'm going to play the clip for you. You tell me if this is the turning point of the game. It absolutely was for me. It happened in the third quarter. Let's jump again. And again, what looks like it. Oh, balls on the ground, Tony. Recovered by the Chiefs. Was that fast enough for you? <laughs> That's where the momentum changed. That, to me, is where the momentum changed in that game. And Kansas City would only get a field goal off of that drive. It cut the Cleveland lead to 22-20 at the time. But that's where, all of a sudden, Kansas City got a breath. And that's where Kansas City went, okay. And if you look what happens afterwards, there are just some small mistakes. And Nick Chubb had a great day, but that's a mistake. Baker Mayfield had a great day, but look at his last pass of the ball game. Just yep. forcing things a little too much. They have a muffed punt in the fourth quarter. Ugh, just a bad, poor decision by the kicker at the time. I know that he drops the punt, but he had time. If he wanted to just get some sort of shank kick or lower kick up the field, he could have done that as well. There's a big third down where they can't quite get a catch on a ball that's quite well thrown by Baker Mayfield. And all of those little things add up. But it's the chub fumble for me that gives Kansas City that deep breath, little wind in their sails, and now they're coming back. Well, because that's the one thing. I mean, there's a lot of things you don't want to do against Kansas City. But chief among them is you don't want to beat yourself, right? You don't want to give them gifts. You don't want to make it any easier for them. Then they already find it. It's They already find playing football pretty easy. You don't have to help them. And that felt like the moment when Cleveland started to help them, right? And when Cleveland started to beat themselves and shoot themselves in the foot. And there were other moments after that. And I think you could point to the muffed punch in particular as, you know, okay, that happens. They get the ball. They score right after that to take the lead. It would be easy to point to that as a turning point. But I do think, you know, that's when the momentum changed. And as you said, that's when Kansas City felt like, okay, we've got these guys on their heels a little bit. They're starting to feel the pressure. They're starting to make those mistakes that we thrive on. That Cleveland roster is deep. It looked very yep. good yesterday. And this is the frustration with Kansas City. You can do what Cleveland did for three quarters yesterday. And then they have those special talents that can take over in a heartbeat. The pass from Mahomes to Hill that nobody throws, and most quarterbacks would be told, don't throw. Hill makes a special play. Mahomes makes a special play. There's no answer for Kelsey in big moments of the game. Chris Jones, as part of a defense that, as we just talked about, had been getting pushed around for the bulk of that game, he comes up and wrecks a drive by himself, getting some pressure on Mayfield, getting sacks off the edge. They have those types of talents, and that's why you need to play a near-flawless game to beat them, especially with their offensive line revamped. Yeah, near-flawless is a great way of putting it. And, and after that Chubb fumble, it was no longer near-flawless for Cleveland, right? That's when the flaws started to creep in, and they opened the door for Kansas City. The stunner of the weekend happens down in Jacksonville, and it doesn't involve the Jaguars, though that might be the best football that Jaguars fans see all season. We can get to Trevor Lawrence and what happened to them against Houston a little bit later on. 
The New Orleans Saints completely obliterating the Green Bay Packers was on nobody's radar coming into this weekend. No, it absolutely was not. I mean, I think people were curious to see what kind of performance we'd get out of Jameis Winston in New Orleans. And, you know, okay, they still have the good defense. They still have Sean Payton. But are there offensive weapons what they once were? Not really. What's Winston going to look like? I think there were a lot of questions. There was a lot of interest. But nobody was anticipating them coming out and looking like world beaters against Green Bay. Held on to the football. Defense looked great. They're up 17-3 to in the first half. And that's just because Green Bay made a couple of special plays on the final drive of the opening half just to get down into field goal range because Aaron Rodgers and co, first of all, they didn't have the ball for much of that opening half. Second of all, nothing was happening for them. The turning point to me happens early in the third quarter, and maybe people think it happened before that. Maybe they think Green Bay's not coming back, but we've seen Rodgers get his game together in a hurry. We have seen him lead incredibly explosive offensive performances in the second half. This is the play that turns it on its ear for me, Jamie. Second down and seven. Rodgers throws and he's picked. Intercepted by Paulson and Debo. That to me, the first Aaron Rodgers pick, that's down in the red zone, Jamie. Aaron Rodgers, the way he goes about it, the way he won his MVP last year, if he punches that in, as most of us were probably expecting him to do, because we've seen it so many times, it's 17-10 and it feels like, great, you dominated the first half and you're only up by a touchdown. Green Bay's right back in this game. Aaron Rodgers throws that pick. He throws a pick on the next drive as well, and it's game, set, match. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, they end up getting Jordan Love some playing time in uh, in garbage time towards the end of it. You know, Aaron Rodgers' final stat line looks horrible. It's the kind of thing where, you know, this always happens after week one, right? When there's a performance like this, is it more about what the offense did poorly or is it more about, you know, New Orleans defense being really exceptionally good? And I, I think both things are true, as, as is often the case, right? New Orleans is going to have a fantastic defense. Aaron Rodgers and, and Green, the Green Bay offense just was not clicking whatsoever today. Like we're used to seeing them. I think that will change. I think they will bet a lot better. They're not going to be, they're not going to struggle like this throughout the season, but it is a reminder that, okay, as much as we were all wondering about the quarterback transition in new Orleans, this team has a lot more going for it than just drew Brees, Right. And, they have the playmakers on defense to do really special things, like you just heard, to force an interception in the red zone in a big moment against a top quarterback. They call it overreaction Monday for a reason, and people are going to overreact to both quarterbacks in this game, I think. They're going to see five touchdown passes on 14 completions for Jameis Winston say, it's all good. It's all good down in New Orleans. And they're going to see Aaron Rodgers, and they're going to say, ah, he's disgruntled, I don't know. The truth is probably somewhere in between. Aaron Rodgers is going to bounce back. That's what I know. I'm not worried about Aaron Rodgers. Green Bay Packers, we can talk about that defense and how much you should be worried about that. That may be a different story, and you might want to keep your eye on that more so than Aaron Rodgers. Jameis Winston, are the stats inflated? The five touchdown passes, is, is it too much, too many overtures for Jameis Winston here today? Yeah, I think if you're focusing on the five touchdown passes, you're kind of missing the bigger story. And that's not to take anything away from Jameis Winston. I mean, first and foremost, he didn't throw any interceptions, right? And I know there was one that got called back that that was a pick, but there was a penalty on the play, so it didn't count. But first and foremost, what he has to do is avoid turning the ball over, right? So he did that. That's almost bigger than the five touchdowns to me. But if you look at the overall game plan, I mean, it was a lot of short throws 
from Jameis Winston. And really, if we are expecting to see a dramatically different offense from New Orleans than what we've seen from Drew Brees uh, under center the last couple of seasons, we didn't really get that. They Sean Payton kind of announced his intention to, at the very least early in the season, while they're building up Jameis Winston's confidence, it's going to look pretty similar. It's going to be a lot of ball control, short passes, dink and dunk. They're not going to really open up the playbook and take those shots downfield. I know they took a couple here or there, but for the most part, it was short. And you look and you look at it, you know, they only had 148 yards. Yeah, five touchdowns, but he wasn't asked to do very much. And that's not, I'm not trying to say he was bad by saying that. I'm just saying use a little bit of caution when you're evaluating. Like this very much felt like step one in a much bigger Jameis Winston project for the New Orleans Saints. The five touchdowns are awesome, but what's going to be more interesting is, okay, do they get a little bit more aggressive? Do they open the playbook up a little bit more? And how does it go then? Because yesterday they didn't ask him to do all that much. Didn't have to. And it's not that he was completely a game manager, but there was a pretty big element of that because they were having their way. Yep. They were pushing around the Green Bay Packers. Alvin Kamara was a star once again, though the fantasy points won't indicate it quite so much. Just take warning. Jameis Winston, we need more time. We need more time to evaluate you here. Someone said what impressed me the most as a Bucs fan, it's Winston's 5-TD game versus Green Bay. He threw to the right team said this texter, <laughs> his LASIK eye surgery was a success. I wanted to hit one more game here, Jamie, before we get to some of the other stories of the weekend, and it's the Buffalo-Pittsburgh game. Not many of us had Pittsburgh going into Buffalo and winning this game. It's not that people think the Steelers are terrible. It's just that people have Buffalo rated extremely high. This was not a pleasant day for Josh Allen and company. No, it was not. And you know what? I think there's going to be a lot of very, very unpleasant days for opposing quarterbacks and opposing offenses against that Pittsburgh Steelers defense. That is the biggest takeaway for me. And I know kind of one of the burning questions for a lot of people going into this NFL season was, okay, is Josh Allen the real deal? right? Is the Josh Allen we saw last year, is that the real guy? Is that who we're going to see again this year? I would caution people very, very strongly against, you know, getting ahead of themselves on, oh, Josh Allen is regressing. Last year was a fluke based on this one game because this Steelers defense is legit. Man, Minka Fitzpatrick was great. Watt was fantastic. They have so many playmakers. They're going to make life extremely, extremely difficult for a lot of quarterbacks. So, Look, you can criticize and you can pick apart things about Josh Allen's game. That's fair. But the big story coming out of that one to me is the Steelers' defense. Do you know how many times they blitzed? How many? Twice. That's it. They blitzed <laughs> twice yesterday. That's Don't what's impressive. To. That's it. Pittsburgh only blitzed twice in that game against the Buffalo Bills yesterday. And that's what stands out to me. And I heard it asked and I heard people say, well, is this the recipe? with what you do to Josh Allen and the Buffalo Bills. Sure, if you have those four defensive linemen, yes. that's great. Yeah. We said the same thing about the 49ers two years ago en route to their run to the Super Bowl. If you have that defensive line, yeah, you could just send four guys all the time and you don't have to worry about blitzing. You can drop all these players into coverage. It's a great luxury to have. Most people aren't going to be able to go about it that way. And yet, Jamie, even with all of that great defensive pressure, Buffalo was in control of this game because Buffalo's defense was doing its own job. And then Buffalo got in its own way. It's so easy to pick out the turning point in this game, isn't it? Buffalo, they decided not to go for it on fourth down, fourth down a couple of times early in the game. But you know what? Okay, we got to go for it on fourth down. And this is the play they dial up. Have a listen. So on fourth and one. 
tight formation. Allen throws it backwards, and none of that worked. What was that? <laughs> what was that? That is one of the worst plays. It looked like a panic job that they didn't know what was happening, and they're going to throw a backwards pass to Matt Breda and try to fool everybody in the stadium. It was awful, Jamie, and that was clearly the turning point in this game. It's bizarre. I mean, I just I can't help but chuckle at the call there because you could hear the announcer in real time is just as baffled as everyone else was watching it. It's especially surprising because with Sean McDermott and Brian Dabble, the offense coordinator there in Buffalo, they have developed a very deserved reputation as really savvy, really smart play callers. And, you know, they do a lot of things that make life easier for Josh Allen, and they do a lot of things that – you know, just make sense and, and keep the game simple while still being explosive. That was not an example of it. it. That's what's surprising to me about it is it's coming from a coaching staff and an offensive kind of brain trust that we think pretty highly of, and they just completely, completely dropped the ball on that fourth down play call. And then all of a sudden the Steelers get a little bit of life. Really wasn't very impressed with the Steelers' offense in that game yesterday. Nope. They did just enough to win. Failed red zone opportunities again for Big Ben and the Pittsburgh Steelers. But they get that play, turns the tide. They get the big blocked punt, which turns out to be the game-winning points for the Pittsburgh Steelers as well. And they do just enough to get out of Buffalo. And Buffalo, quite frankly, maybe take a page out of Cleveland's book. Cleveland says, we're good. We think we're good. We're going to be aggressive. Buffalo, make that part of your DNA. Make that part of your DNA, and Jamie, that fourth down play, while the, the decision to go for it feels aggressive, the fact that they hadn't gone on a couple of other fourth downs earlier in the game, and then that play call is a very tentative, passive play call to me. It's trying to fool yeah. people instead of just saying, we're going to go get it, we're going to take it right now. Buffalo needs to be more aggressive moving forward. Well, and it feels like a bit of a panic play call, right? And again, not, as you say, not having the confidence in their offense. And look, at that point, they've been struggling against the Pittsburgh defense. So I do understand that a little bit. But if you think you're a legit Super Bowl contender, you got to find that confidence in your team, right? You can't be panicking week one and thinking, oh, man, we need to we need to drop some sort of bizarre trick play to pick this up. you got to still have the confidence in your guys to go get that. You know the sign of a great sporting event, Jamie? You're willing to plan your day and maybe your weekend around it. I know if you're a fan of a particular NFL team, you probably did that already. If you happen to love a CFL team, maybe you did that as well. I planned my Saturday. My family, we planned our Saturday around the Women's U.S. Open final. My mom was in town. I had parents visiting. She wanted to see her grandkids. But everybody in the household was completely in agreement that whatever we did, we needed to be back for 1 o'clock Pacific, 2 o'clock Mountain, so we could watch the U.S. Open Women's Final. Did you have anything like that? Not quite the same level of commitment, but I was, you know, watching it on Saturday. I didn't need to move a whole bunch of things around or make those sorts of plans, but I did make sure I was watching it. Tough ending to a, an incredible tournament for Layla Annie Fernandez. She just didn't have her service game. And she didn't have the same shot making that she had had earlier in the tournament. Emma Raducanu was fantastic, but Layla yep. just wasn't sharp like she had been in the service game. It let her down from the beginning. She couldn't quite get it back. She fought to the bitter end. She just didn't have her A game, Jamie. No, she didn't. And it's, uh, I mean, Emma Raducanu was fantastic, really, as she's been all tournament. It, it's, it's almost a, like, I know, look, it's, we're Canadian. We're going to focus on Layla Fernandez and her accomplishment and what she did. And that's all extremely impressive, even though she comes up just short in the final. But the Emma Raducanu story is really like, I almost can't wrap my mind around it, right? To win as a qualifier for the first time that's ever happened, not drop a set 
and really not even be troubled for most of it. I think she was in one tiebreaker the entire tournament. You know, even in the final against Layla, she, okay, 6-4, 6-3, made pretty easy work of it. It's it's an incredible, incredible story, and I think Layla doesn't need to feel any shame whatsoever because, you know what, you ran into a buzzsaw. Like, Raducanu was untouchable all tournament long, and she was again on Saturday. This text came in earlier in the segment. I wanted to get to it. Layla Annie Fernandez's comments at the U.S. Open and what she said regarding 9-11 in the city of New York. She's 19 years old. Seeing her hold that much poise, maturity, and awareness, it almost brought me to tears, says this texter. Couldn't be more proud of yet another amazing Canadian woman. That's very well stated. Agree wholeheartedly. I was watching the post-game, post-match, I should say, trophy presentations. She was incredible. We're going to play those comments for you a little bit later in this show, but... What do we always say about our athletes? We want you to achieve, but we also want you to represent us extremely yep. well. It doesn't get much better than that. No, it really doesn't. I mean, the whole tournament, she's been, she has represented the country. She's represented herself and her family so well. And that's why you've seen, not just here in Canada, but the crowd in New York, right? Tennis commentators, people from other sports have really latched onto her and really got behind her on that run because she is so likable and she does carry herself so well on the big stage. Rocket and Langley says, I think the turning point in the U.S. Women's Open Tennis Final was when the girl that got injured, that's Emma Raducanu, took that five minutes away and took momentum away from Fernandez. It felt like that at the time, and maybe Fernandez goes on to win that. But remember, she's down 5-2 in that second set, and she's trying to fight all the way back. Even if she wins that game, which maybe she does, Rocket and Langley, it felt like she had the momentum on her side there, but she's still trying to fight back. She's still down 30-40 in that as Raducanu's trying to close it out she's still got to get her serve and make it 5-5 and we're back in the same place that we were in set number one it was Emma Raducanu's day I know why people were a little bit choked Leila Annie Fernandez was choked at the time but as was pointed out by many people who cover the sport look if you're bleeding they won't let you back on the court and yeah Raducanu had to go get that treatment it felt like it was taking too long I get it, but that's mainly because we're biased here. Yeah, it's you look. I understand the impulse to look for things like that. That's not what caused Layla Annie Fernandez the match. And the point about you know it's blood. She literally can't go back on the court until it's fixed. That's a very good one. But as you laid out, Scotty, I mean, it's not as if this was in the decisive game of the set or decisive game of the match, right? Like it still would have been an incredible uphill battle, even if Layla is able to pull that game out. We're going to talk more NFL football, dig more into the weekend coming up next. we got Dom Cosentino, the score, about to join us. And, Jamie, speaking of the NFL, there was a pretty high-profile case of this a couple of months ago, and now it's happened in hockey. I will tell you what I'm talking about next when we return on Rintoul and Sermon with Jamie Dodd. A couple of months ago, it was a pretty big deal in the National Football League when the Minnesota Vikings parted ways with their offensive line coach, Jamie, he wasn't going to get the vaccine, Mike Zimmer, and he had it out. And Zimmer said, look, you're not going to be able to do your job properly. You can't be face-to-face with our players. You're going to have to do virtual meetings. And the offensive line coach said, okay, I'm out then. We'll agree to part ways. We'll mutually go our own ways. That has already happened in the NHL, sort of. Rocky Thompson down in Anaheim, assistant coach with the Ducks, said, okay, I'm not going to get the vaccine, so I'm going to voluntarily step down. Well, the Columbus Blue Jackets today have made the decision for their assistant coach because of his decision. Sylvain Lefebvre, he was 
unwilling to get vaccinated. And so the Columbus Blue Jackets have put this out today that they are parting ways with him. They are replacing him actually with a former Vancouver Canuck and a BC native. He was a Canuck for a very small part of his career. More on him in a second. But Sylvain Lefebvre, he's not going to be with the Columbus Blue Jackets as an assistant coach because of an inability to perform the duties required of him given current NHL protocols. Yeah, it's not a big surprise. Uh, as you said, we've already seen it in another sport. And what it comes down to, and then the way the Columbus Blue Jackets framed it there, is you're just not going to be an effective assistant coach in, in those circumstances, right? So if that's if that's going to be the case, then an NHL team almost has to move on, right? Or, or the choice is to just have a part of your staff that's that's not performing up to their full capabilities. There will be some out there who are part of the unvaccinated community that say this isn't fair but as the rules have been put in place and we've talked about this time and time again your hands get tied in a hurry and while leagues cannot mandate vaccination we saw the nfl come heavy with this first the nhl followed suit as well as saying look it's going to be pretty bad for you in terms of what you can do the restrictions are going to be really tight in the case of a cross-border league you might not be going to canada like the way things read right now if you're a player in the National Hockey League who's not vaccinated or if you're an assistant coach who obviously would be traveling with the team, you're not flying into Canada to be part of those games coaching. And so in Columbus, they've decided to part ways. I've said it time and time again, and I'll say it one more time for those who haven't heard it. I can't tell you what to put in your body. That is your choice. But with every single choice in life, there are consequences. Some of them are good. Some of them are bad. And when it comes to these sports, you know what the consequences are based on the decision to get vaccinated or not. Yeah, and, and the NHL rules, we should note, for officials or for um, for coaches and staff are, are pretty stringent, right? It's, it's basically anyone, if you have to be within 12 feet of players, you have to be vaccinated. Those are the NHL rules for hockey operations officials, coaches, trainers, etc. And so if you choose not to be, it's not even clear how you can do your job, right? I mean, it would be entirely virtual. You couldn't be on the bench, et cetera, et cetera. It would be really just an impossible situation. Quickly, who the who's the Vancouver Canuck? The former Vancouver Canuck who's stepping in behind the Columbus bench? None other than Steve McCarthy. He was in Vancouver for just one season, Jamie. He is a native of Trail, British Columbia. He's been working with the Cleveland Monsters as an associate coach. So the 40-year-old jumps onto the Blue Jackets bench. He gets the bump up to the bigs. There you go. Congrats to Steve McCarthy, BC boy, getting a good opportunity. Let's turn our attention back to the National Football League. As we promised we would, you can text us at any time, 960-960 or 650-650 throughout the course of the show. Dom Cosentino doesn't need to do that. We'll talk to him right now. He's with The Score and covers the National Football League. Dom, thank you very much for doing this today. How are you? You're welcome, guys. Thanks for having me. I'm, I'm doing just great. The perfect uh, late uh, summer day here in New York City, so uh, all's well. I'm glad to hear that. Which team is at the top of your list for most impressive performance this weekend in the National Football League? I'd have to say the New Orleans Saints, just with what they did to the Green Bay Packers. I, I think everyone anticipated, despite all the turmoil in Green Bay in the offseason, that, that the Packers would continue to be a, a, a force in the NFC. And, and they may still, because they still have Aaron Rodgers. Uh, but just to go out and, and, and win that decisively and get the performance they got from Jameis Winston, because I think there were just a lot of questions about what that offense would look like with Winston being such a, a shift from what Drew Brees was in the past, but he really played within himself, and, and they, they just kind of clicked on all cylinders. 
And if I had to go 1B, I would also say the Arizona Cardinals for what they did in Tennessee. Arizona putting 38 on Tennessee and limiting what looked to be, uh, at least from a fantasy football standpoint, a pretty loaded Tennessee offense to just 13 points, jumps off the page as well. As much as Arizona did what it did, what happened to the Tennessee Titans other than Chandler Jones just wrecking shop? Yeah, I, I think that had a lot to do with it. It's just the, the pass rush that the, the, the Cardinals had. It was, it was Chandler Jones, it was Zach Allen, it was J.J. Watt. Just the, the ability to generate that kind of pressure, uh, you know, really put a lot of put a lot of heat on, on the Titans and made it difficult for them to get in any kind of rhythm. And I think another thing to keep in mind with with the the Titans is that they lost offensive coordinator Arthur Smith, um, you know, who was widely credited with with revitalizing Ryan Tannehill's career, getting a lot out of Derrick Henry. You know, as, as great as Henry's been these last couple of years, he he didn't play as well in a different system. Uh, in the early part of his career. So what, I think one thing to watch will just be how the, the you know the play calling and the performance uh, you know affects what the Titans do despite all of the talent the skill position talent they have on offense. But but credit to the Cardinals no doubt. And sticking in that game Dom with the uh, with the Cardinals, you know Kyler Murray was really fantastic and he's been impressive the last couple of his first two years in the NFL, do you think we could see him take uh, a major leap forward this year and be a legitimate MVP candidate? I, I, I think it's possible, yes, because even, you know, if you get to probably through the first nine or, or ten games of last season, he was playing very well, and they were six and three in, in, in playoff position. Then he hurts his shoulder. Uh, and then the Patriots play a game where they, against the Cardinals, where they, you know, put a lot of defensive backs on the field and kind of take away a lot of the running lanes for Murray. Yesterday, I think you saw what he can do uh, at, you know, at full strength, at full health uh, with the arsenal of weapons he's got at his disposal there. Uh, it's one game, so you don't want to get carried away. Uh, a lot can still happen here. There's still 16 more to go. Uh, but that was certainly a very, very impressive win for the Cardinals, no doubt, and, and an impressive performance by Murray. I think the game that a lot of people had circled yesterday to pay attention to was Kansas City and Cleveland, and it lived up to it. It was a great game. Should the Browns be more encouraged that they were able to hang with the Chiefs on the road and almost pull off the upset, or should they be more frustrated that they let it slip away late? I think they ought to be frustrated because, you know, they, I, don't, I don't know that the Browns are a, 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 an up-and-coming team anymore. They're here. They've got as good a roster as any team in the NFL. Um, you know, they, they, they certainly can contend for a Super Bowl, and, and, and they had that game. I mean, it took, a, it took a, a fumble by Nick Chubb there in the second half as, as Cleveland was coming back, and then, then a muffed punt really to set up the game-winning score that Patrick Mahomes got for, for, for Kansas City before Baker Mayfield threw that late pick. But, but Kansas City had this team on – Cleveland, excuse me, had this team on the ropes – and I think it's an indication of just how good the Browns are. That was a win that, that slipped away that may, may come back to, to hurt them when, it, when we're talking about playoff seeding later, later in the year or even division seeding in a division you know, where, where they're matched up with Pittsburgh and, and Baltimore and even Cincinnati who won yesterday. Yes, they did. Found a way to get it done in overtime despite Kirk Cousins in Minnesota tying that thing up at the end of regulation. Dom Cosentino, the score NFL, joins us here today on Rinto and Sermon with Jamie Dodd. Sticking with that Cleveland-Kansas City game, should there be any concern on the Browns' part with as well as they played and as much balance and aggression as they showed that at a critical time of the game, Baker Mayfield got just a little too too much of that gambler in him instead of managing the situation? 
Yeah, I think that's the one issue, and, and, and it's the one issue that's sort of been a theme for the Browns, uh, you know, since Mayfield has come into the league. It, 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 does the offense and structure he's in elevate him, or does he elevate the offense? And yesterday was an opportunity. He had plenty of time and was moving the ball. You know, he didn't need to really rush that throw. I know it's one of those plays that kind of happens, uh, but I think that, you know, it, it would have done wonders for him I, to, to move Cleveland downfield uh, to give them an opportunity to win that game in, in, instead of throwing it away like that. He's still got plenty of time, though, to get this, to, to, to make up for that and get this thing right. And he's got a terrific roster around him. They sh- this is a team that should be getting Odell Beckham Jr. back quite soon. Uh, so, you know, I'm really eager to see what Baker can do here the rest of the season. With that offense in the passing game specifically, because I'm with you, it just that's first down, Baker. you got lots of time left on the clock. Just don't force that ball, even if you take a slight loss there or just fire the ball into the turf. Priority right. list just got a little out of sequence in his head in that moment, and we'll see where he goes from there. But with that passing game specifically, how encouraging should it be that they were able to take some shots downfield with David Njoku and get him incorporated back into that offense? Well, yeah, I mean, that, that you know, Baker was terrific otherwise. I mean, he really had an excellent game, uh, great game plan. He was doing a lot of things he does well, getting outside the pocket, but also taking those shots downfield, like you mentioned. So, they, you know, it, it, as disappointing as the end of that game was, it was very encouraging given how he played, you know, the, 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 the remain, in the early parts and the remainder of that ball game because he really was terrific, and I think that's what the Browns can hang their hats on ultimately. Matthew Stafford has an excellent debut with the L.A. Rams. They blow the Chicago Bears away at home. How much different does that offense look to you with him conducting things instead of Jared Goff? Significantly different just because he has the the arm strength and the ability, particularly if you you watch that first touchdown, he rolls to his left and kind of throws back to his right. That's the big arm kind of Matthew Stafford play and and the sort of play that, that, that he can make that Jared Goff may not have been able to do. But, you know, we're talking about Sean McVay has the reputation for, for putting in all kinds of bells and whistles that will scheme receivers open. And you saw a lot of that last night, and you combine that with Stafford's all-around ability and his arm strength, which is the big thing. Uh, and I, I think we saw the reason why the Rams made the trade for in this offseason. Dom Cosentino of The Score NFL joining us here today on Rental and Sermon with Jamie Dodd. On the losing side of that game, of course, the Chicago Bears. And we all know what the first question is, when does Justin Fields start? Now, nobody in that division won a game, so they're all starting with zero in week number two. However, how long can Matt Nagy, who's probably coaching for his job this year, justify starting Dalton over Fields after what we saw yesterday? That's the million-dollar question, you know, when, when, when we talk about the Bears because, it, you know, how many it, – it's one thing. Nagy was with Kansas City when they had Patrick Mahomes playing behind Alex Smith in 2017, but that was a, a playoff team. They won 11 games, I, I think, that year. And, you know, Smith, Smith was, was running the same sort – a very similar system to what Mahomes does now and thriving in it. The Bears, we know who Andy Dalton is at this point. We know what he's going to bring. And – I just wonder how many losses it may take uh, before Nagy is willing to pull the trigger and, and, and make the switch. Well, and the other interesting thing with the Bears, I find, Dom, is you know we're so used to the idea of, okay, they've got this fantastic defense and they just need to find someone who can play quarterback. And look, I mean, I know it's one game, but they also give up 34 to the Rams last night. Is the defense still at that level, or do we need to kind of readjust our expectations for that defense? 
I don't know that I'd readjust the expectation after one game, particularly against, you know, the, the Matt Stafford, Sean McVay, Rams, you know, on the road. Uh, you know, if we, we, we get ahead of ourselves here and it's a couple weeks where they're, they're not stopping anyone going forward, then I begin to panic a little bit. But, you know, it's all, you always want to be careful not to overreact to just one game this early in the season and in an even longer season now that we're, we're at 17 games. I want to ask you a little bit about the Seattle and Indianapolis game, and I want to start with Carson Wentz. He makes his debut in a Colts uniform. What did you think of his performance? You know, I, I, I think there, you saw some, some good things and some bad things. You know, he's still got a little bit of the happy feet, which I think is going to be a concern. It's kind of an issue that he had in Philadelphia, especially last year. Um, you know, so going against a pretty good Seattle team as well. So, again, I, I, you know, you don't want to overreact, but it was a tough spot for him, you know, given the opponent. Um, but he, he does have a long way to go, too. I mean, he, he, you know, I, I just wonder if last year was an aberration or not. And, and yesterday, I don't think really gave us an indication one way or another. Um, but he's got a long way to go for sure. Well, and you mentioned the happy feet a little bit. And look, first from Seattle's perspective, I mean, Russell Wilson was great. You know, Tyler Lockett was great. DK Metcalf made some big plays. I don't think any of that's a surprise. But what I thought was a little bit of surprise was how effective their defensive line was, especially going up against uh, Indianapolis and their vaunted offensive line. Were you as impressed with what Seattle's defensive front was able to do against Indy? Yes. I think, you know, getting that kind of pressure, especially against a line that's as renowned as the Colts, uh, it, you know, is a real statement, I think, for the, the Seahawks. And, and they're going to need performances like that, given some of the other offenses and the way they look in that NFC West, which I think is the best division in football. Yeah, it certainly is the flip of the NFC North right now. They won all of their games yesterday, did the NFC West, and now it's just who had the most impressive. Dom Cosentino of the Score NFL joining us for a few more minutes here on Rinto and Sermon with Jamie Dodd. Teddy Bridgewater, did he have the low-key, outstanding quarterback performance this weekend for you? Yeah, I mean, he did, he, he did what, what uh, I, I think the Broncos hoped he would do, which is just kind of play an efficient, you know, kind of style and not turn the ball over, not take too many risks uh, because I think Denver is really going to try to lean on their defense as much as possible. And we saw yesterday how terrific that Vic Fangio defense can be, but yeah, I, you know, Teddy's not, he's not going to wow anyone because I think we're not going to see too many big plays from him, but he's going to play mistake free and he's going to, he, he's going to move the chains and, and that kind of thing. And I think that's a lot of what you saw. It's overreaction Monday, so we understand whether it's the Green Bay Packers or Chicago Bears, whatever. There's always going to be overreaction on Monday. How concerned, if at all, should fans in Buffalo be with what they saw this weekend? Not too much. I mean, you know, the one caveat on the uh, Josh Allen hype train was that he really only had one great year out of the first three that he had in the league. But that was an outstanding performance by the Pittsburgh Steelers defense who who benefited from from getting Melvin Ingram, who they who they got for a song in the middle of the summer, um, you know, and, and and were able to line up all over the formation, and you know, a great uh, an, a, an outstanding game from Cam Hayward on that defensive line. Josh Allen's not going to be facing defenses like that every week, so you know, I, while I while I, I I think some of the hype train comes with that asterisk that it was just one year, he was also going up against a really really good defense yesterday, and again, let's see what he does here in the weeks ahead. 
Most people had either the Browns or the Bills second behind Kansas City in the AFC as far as contenders go. Do you still have them in that same spot, or is there another team in that mix? Yeah, I, I would still have things in that spot. I'm eager to see what the Baltimore Ravens do tonight. I know they had a lot of, uh, uh, you know, injury. They've had a lot of injuries, particularly with their running backs. But uh, you know, I, I, I put them in that category too. I'm not yet ready to to put the Pittsburgh Steelers up that high, just because I, I was not impressed with with what Ben Roethlisberger did. I thought he played pretty slow quite often yesterday. So yeah, I, I, nothing really changes after one week. I still think it's 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 Kansas City. Baltimore and Buffalo at the top of the conference. Where's your concern with Ben Roethlisberger and his ability to push the ball down the field? It was a big question toward the tail end of last season. Many said, well, now he's had another offseason to fully recover from that injury. How concerned are you about that aspect of his game? Yeah, still pretty concerned because I thought for, for three quarters or so yesterday, you know, he, he was delivering the ball kind of late just after receivers were coming out of their breaks and, you know, missing open receivers. He did make some good throws late in the game when they, they needed to kind of put it away and, and add that field goal to, to stretch the lead to 10. Uh, but, it, but he, you know, he, I don't think he took a deep, uh, threw a deep ball at all, uh, you know, over 20 air yards. So, you know, I think we, we, we kind of saw a lot of the Ben Roethlisberger we saw late in the year. And, you know, the Steelers are clearly going to try to paper that over with, with the excellent defense they've got. But, you know, if we if it gets to a point where Roethlisberger needs to win them a game, I'm not convinced of that yet. That can obviously change. It's only one game. But but I'm, I'm, I still saw a lot of what he was late in the year yesterday uh, with, with how he played. Dom, all five quarterbacks taken in the first round of the draft last year got on the field in week one, at least in some capacity. But I want to focus on the first two picks, Trevor Lawrence and Zach Wilson, who neither team gets the win. Who showed more reasons for optimism for the rest of their rookie year between those two? I thought, you know, the, the Jaguars just looked flat out hopeless. So I think it's 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 hard to really gauge Trevor Lawrence's performance in that game. But I, I thought Zach Wilson, just given the the pressure he faced early in the game, the you know the Jets lost their left tackle early, and he was just under a, a ferocious rush. But he he kind of rallied a little bit. It wasn't enough to win the game, but he made some plays, particularly out of structure. Uh, getting the ball downfield, so I, I thought of the two, uh, just just going on the individual performance. It was Wilson, but again, you know, Lawrence and the Jaguars look like they really have a long way to go. Well, and I, I just want to follow up on the Jaguars because you're right; they did look pretty hopeless yesterday. And I mean, with the whole Urban Meyer situation, look, I know it's it's overreaction Monday. It's Week One. Let's not get ahead of ourselves. But even how the off season went and the and training camp went, I think there were a lot of questions about his fit as an NFL head coach, how do you see this playing out in Jacksonville for the rest of the year with Urban Meyer? I don't know, because, you know, one of, one of the issues with him is that, you know, he's that classic control freak college coach and you're now dealing with professionals. So that that's different. He also never took losing that well. And he, you know, when he was, when he was coaching in college and he didn't lose that often, you know, now, I, you know, Albert Breer wrote this morning in sports illustrated that, you know, now he's got a used to, get used to being in a situation where five losses in a season is good enough to get you to the playoffs. So, you know, how is he going to cope with the growing pains that this team has to go through this year and perhaps even into 2022 where he's going to have to deal with losing uh, is really going to be interesting because his background does not indicate he handles that really well. Dom, excellent stuff. Thank you very much. There's always too much to get to after a loaded Sunday in the National sure. Football League, but we did our best to cover the whole thing. Thank you for your time today, and enjoy the Monday Nighter. You're welcome. Anytime. Thanks for having me, guys. Take care. We will, and you as well. That is 
Dom Cosentino of the score National Football League. One of the stories we didn't get into, Jamie, it's not the overriding story of the week. There's some bad injuries again this weekend yeah. and early season. We saw some of the, we talked about Baltimore and how decimated that backfield was be has been, and we'll see what happens tonight. We'll see if Latavius Murray even gets some touches. They might have to go down that road. Who knows how much the offense he's been able to digest, or Le'Veon Bell for that matter. It'll be Tyson Williams to start things off the second-year running back who was undrafted. Ryan Fitzpatrick in Washington, hip subluxation. He'll be on injured reserve. No indication it's season-ending, but they've signed another quarterback today. Offense didn't look very good, quite frankly, with him running things yesterday. You see two corners lost in that Niners and Lions game. San Francisco lost its best cornerback in Jason Verrett. Jeff Okuda, the third overall pick by the Detroit Lions last year's draft. He's gone as well. Torn Achilles for him. Some tough ones yesterday. Well, and Verrett in particular. I mean, if you've followed his story at all, he has dealt with so many injuries. He's been really good for the most part when he's been on the field and when he's been healthy, but it's just been one thing after another. And then the other corner who goes down in that game, you know, they have – look, anytime you take a cornerback with the third overall pick, you obviously have incredibly high expectations. You're expecting him to be a cornerstone of your defense going forward, right? And now with that kind of injury – I mean, look, people can come back from them, but it's going to be really hard for him to live up to those expectations. That's such a tough one. How about Zach Wilson? He has his first day, and he got better as that game went on, but he was running for his life a bunch in that game to start against Carolina. He lost his left tackle. He's gone four to six weeks. Makai Becton, arthroscopic knee surgery, so what has been a bad situation for a really long time, it gets worse in in the interim for Zach Wilson as he tries to cut his teeth in this league. And Becton was really the bright spot for the Jets last year. He was a star last year. He was awesome. He, again, a guy they are expecting to be one of the main pieces, the foundational pieces of their franchise at left tackle. Like, he was fantastic. That that one really hurts, especially, you know, you feel okay drafting a quarterback and putting him in as a rookie because you say, look, at least we've got this solution at left tackle, right? We know we can protect him on that one spot. Everything else might be a work in progress, but it's not going to be a disaster because we have the star left tackle. Now you don't. That's a really tough blow, too. Astute listener pointed this out, so I wanted to make the correction before the end of this segment. I said earlier about Rocky Thompson, him stepping down after not getting the vaccine. He has a medical exemption, and that's why he didn't get the vaccine, but he made the choice to step down because of how it would inhibit his ability to do his job. Different than, obviously, Sylvain Lefebvre choosing no i can get the vaccine but i'm just not going to do that and i guess it's going to cost me my job that's what has happened in columbus today that weekend was so loaded we haven't even gotten to what would have been one of the biggest stories today it does bear some attention however and we'll give it some next right here on rental and sermon with jamie dot right there there were two tapes my first two tapes that was one of them jamie from back in the day that was one of them that's classic rock now. It's a good it was choice. new to me at the time. It was new to me at the time back in the 80s, buddy. But if you're after more classic rock, you'll find the perfect mix in the Classic Rock Essentials playlist on Apple Music from the 60s and 70s all the way to the 90s. Listen to the Classic Rock Essentials playlist on Apple Music. I told you this on Friday that I was going to attend my first couple of sporting events live and in person. I did so. I was at BC Place on consecutive nights. I took in an MLS match between Vancouver and Portland. On Friday, I then went to the BC Lions and Ottawa Red Blacks on Saturday as well. And it was pretty fun, man. It was pretty fun to be back. Live crowd, live sporting event. Yes, 
wearing masks and there was some distancing that was happening, although I'm not sure exactly what the policy looks like in that sense because there were a lot of people congregated together in some sections. Yeah. But I will tell you, it was a lot of fun to be back in a building, see live sports, and I didn't feel too hesitant myself going into those games. Well, I can imagine. It must have been a ton of fun, right? And as long as you feel, you know, personally safe and, and you you not you feel like you're not taking too big of a risk by being there, yeah, it would be a blast. I'm sure. I'm still waiting for my first opportunity. I'm excited to do it when I get the chance to. And, hey, I mean, you got the result on one of the nights, right? The home team was able to come through with a win, but I'm glad you had a good time. Yeah, I would have liked to have seen a more entertaining soccer match on Friday. Yeah. Vancouver-Portland did not qualify as that. It was quite choppy. It wasn't as entertaining as I had hoped. The Whitecaps losing for the first time in 11 MLS matches. Saturday, when the home team scores touchdowns on its first four touches of the ball game, it certainly helps the crowd get into it, I can tell you that. Yep. That's a good foundation for a, for a fun experience at the football stadium when your home team does that. Well, and especially when they're exciting plays, not just methodical. Yep. And there was some of that involved, but there were big plays down the field. There was a 115-yard kickoff return for a touchdown as well. And that's the part of the Canadian game that people want to go see, those big plays. Hey, somebody misses a kick or there's a punt return that goes somewhere. That's the one thing that I know they did it out of safety in the NFL. I would love to see it incorporated more into the game where I don't know if they'll ever go with a no-yards type rule. I think that's that's wishful thinking in the national football league but i yeah. would like to see some of those athletes have the opportunity to return the ball far more often because as lucky whitehead showed us it's a great part of the game well it's exciting when it does happen that's for sure and it really has been taken out of the nfl game to a certain extent it's one of the big advantages just in terms of product and entertainment that the cfl does have and of course you know it's it's the rules it's also just the dimensions of the field with the wider field makes it a little easier and yeah it's it's a fantastic play when it does happen i'm with you i don't know if we ever see the nfl try to tilt it back in that direction though no i think there are things that will happen in my lifetime with the national football league i'm convinced at some point the field gets wider i don't think it will ever be as wide as the cfl field but with collisions being where they're at and players being as fast and as physical as they are now widening the field to a certain extent to just allow a little bit larger lanes to throw the yep. football to limit some of the contacts so that people can get out of the way i think that will happen at some point jamie but i don't see them changing that part of the game that i just mentioned well, and on the field dimensions, we've seen how much the NFL is willing to tinker to try to increase passing offense and increase scoring, right? And also, in some ways, to increase player safety. And, you know, widening the field checks all of those boxes, right? It makes it a more offensive game. It, it makes it easier to pass. It, it might have some player safety benefits as well. So just based on what we've seen from the NFL and how they're willing to play with the rules, yeah, that's absolutely something they could consider. Okay, so we mentioned the story last hour about Sylvain Lefebvre in Columbus. He is out as an assistant coach with the Blue Jackets because he's not going to get vaccinated, so they have replaced him on the bench. There's some news moving like that in the Canadian Football League today, and it has to do with the Toronto Argonauts. And it really doesn't matter if you're dialed into the CFL or not because these stories are the type that are happening in sports right now, and people have a pretty big opinion on them. So... It's not the CFL that has mandated vaccinations. There are different rules if you're vaccinated and not vaccinated in the CFL. It didn't start that way, but they've changed as they've gone. But MLSE, which is the parent company of the Toronto Argonauts now, they do have a vaccination policy in place. And because of that, 
Jamie. There are a couple of assistant coaches there that are on leave right now. The defensive coordinator, Glenn Young, DB coach Josh Bell, they are currently on leave. So Rich Stubler, longtime defensive coordinator in the CFL, he's going to call the defensive game this week. But apparently former head coach of both the Edmonton former team name, now the Elks, and the Saskatchewan Roughriders, Chris Jones is headed back to the CFL. He's going to be joining the Toronto Argonauts, apparently as an assistant head coach and DB coach as well. So they're getting some firepower with a pretty big resume in Canadian Football League circles back in T.O. Yeah, a lot of names shuffling around, as you say, at least in part because of various vaccine mandates from MLSC. The Chris Jones name was the one that really surprised me when I saw it this morning. He had taken, I believe, a a job coaching high school football, I think, with his alma mater uh, in the United States. And it's kind of funny. The reaction from that community is, you know, hey, like six months ago, you said this was your dream job coming home to coach here in high school. Now, all of a sudden, you're bolting uh, back for the CFL. But as you say, big name for the Argos to land when they need some help on the on the sidelines. Yeah, Chris Jones was a defensive coordinator in Toronto, and then he went to Edmonton and had the head coaching gig, went to Saskatchewan, and they were none too pleased in Edmonton with the way he and his staff left. Then he was with the Cleveland Browns. You mentioned what he's done recently. So in Canadian Football League circles, that is fairly big news. We'll talk more about the CFL, what happened this past weekend, where we're headed, and certainly that breaking story with John Hodge in the third hour of the program today. It tells you what a sports weekend it was, Jamie, and maybe it tells you as much that he didn't win, that we've gone this far into the program without getting to Novak Djokovic, who many just assumed was getting number 21, was getting the calendar slam, and not only did he not win versus Daniil Medvedev yesterday, he didn't win a set in that final in Flushing Meadows. No, Medvedev, I don't want to say made it look easy, but that's almost how it felt, right? Like, he looked like the far superior player. It was never close. Straight sets over Djokovic in the final. It was a really... You know, it was surprising in both ways, right? That Medvedev was able to do it so easily and that Djokovic, on the cusp of history, right, wasn't able to put up more of a fight. Now, if you were listening to this program on Friday, you would have heard Ben Lewis, who joined us. He works with Tennis Canada. He works with Fan 590 as well, and he's a tennis coach. You would have heard him point out that Neil Medvedev is the best hardcourt player right now, that he had more hardcourt titles in the most recent span over Novak Djokovic, and that extended, of course, this weekend but because of what Djokovic has done and because of how dominant he had been this year that was the expectation there are a couple of things here one incredible accomplishment for Medvedev he was so great in this tournament good for him and it's part of that next wave that's coming in tennis the other thing it points out Jamie is that it's going to be tougher going forward for Djokovic well Federer and Nadal have had their injuries and we don't know how much is left for either of those players This next wave is getting stronger, and it comes at a time, obviously, as Novak Djokovic gets older. He's still the number one player on grass. He'd be the co-favorite at the French Open. He beat Nadal there this past year en route to to winning that event. But you just saw what Medvedev does on hard courts. There are others like Zverev. We talk about the Canadian contingent. This next wave of players is getting stronger, and it's not necessarily a fait accompli that he gets number 21 because they're still all tied at number at 20 overall for Grand Slam it, titles. It still feels like, to me, not a guarantee, but I would be very, very shocked if he never wins another major in his career. Like, that would be a very stunning 
result to me. And look, okay, Medvedev was dominant yesterday, but as you said, he's still the best grass player in the world. He's going to be the major, major favorite at Wimbledon. He's going to be the co-favorite at the French Open. You know, yeah, he dropped sets. Okay, and I know in the semifinals, Varev, it was a five-set match as well. So there are players that can contend with him and that can push him and can beat him on hard court. But it still feels like he's got enough opportunities remaining. He's going to get it. It's just a question of when for me. Oh, okay. So I brought this up before, and I'd love your opinion on this and that of any of our listeners as well. And I've talked about the Tom Brady discussion. It went for a really long time with Tom Brady that not everyone was willing to call him the greatest quarterback of all time because he'd lost enough Super Bowls, despite the fact he had more than Joe Montana. He'd lost enough, whereas Joe had never lost one, that people went, we can have a pretty good debate here. But eventually, the volume of work for Tom Brady separated him. I mean, he's he's one more Super Bowl from doubling yes. the number that Joe Montana got, if you can believe that, which, which seems crazy now. But the volume of work just got so big that you couldn't really argue against him as far as career accomplishments. How far does Djokovic have to be beyond both Federer and Nadal to make it unequivocal and make it no more debate? Well, it's definitely more than one, right? 21 is not going to get it done. It's got to be probably like 24, I would think, right, is when you start to move past the, the debate. I would think even 22, 23, you'd have people standing up and saying, you know know what, Federer is my goat or Nadal is my goat. I think you got to push it to probably 24, 25 to really just end the debate, to make the debate look foolish, right? And that's how it is with Tom Brady right now. The debate is foolish. Everyone, even if you don't like Tom Brady, even if you hated him as a Patriot, He's the GOAT. That's fine. We can all agree. There's no sense in debating it. To get to that point, yeah, I think 24-25 is probably the number you're looking at for Djokovic. I'm with you. I'm with you because he gets to 22. People will say, wow, 22, that's two more than Federer and Nadal, assuming neither of those players wins another. And I'm not gonna. I'm not willing to say that yet because if Nadal gets healthy and he gets back on clay yep. next year at the French Open, are you betting against him? No, probably not. Right. So, again, it's going to be this cluster, and so that's why this is as hard for Djokovic as anything else because if he'd gotten this one, like if he gets Australia, okay, he's still got 21, he's got more than anybody else. But if he'd gotten this one, Jamie, it's, oh, you got a calendar slam, which those two guys yes. never got, and you got 21 in the year that you got the calendar slam, so we're kind of have to, we're going to have to crown you right now. But now well, it changes that, a little bit. Yeah. And that's probably the bigger thing for the GOAT conversation is that he lost what likely, again, you never know, but likely will be his only opportunity to the, to do the calendar slam, which would, ju would have just been another feat that he had that Federer and Nadal didn't have, right? So then you look at it, it's 21, it's 22, plus the calendar slam. That strengthens his argument a lot more. Now, even if he gets to 21 or 22, he won't have that supporting piece of evidence to back him up. Let's get to what they're saying. It's the time of the program for it. Whoa, what are you talking about, man? What are you saying? Not saying anything. You're saying something? I guess that's what I'm saying, Brooks. Here's what they're saying. We promised you this audio, so we will get to it now. Right off of the U.S. Open finals going down this weekend, Djokovic, he can't get the job done. Djokovic, I should say, against Medvedev and... This country was pulling for Layla Annie Fernandez, and she just didn't have her best stuff on Saturday. Full credit to Emma Raducanu, who wins the U.S. Open at the age of 18 years old and does so as a qualifier. Just an incredible story. Didn't drop a set the entire tournament. Layla Annie Fernandez, 
She was so great in victory. She might have been better in defeat with what she did on that stage with that crowd in that city on the 20-year anniversary of 9-11. Have a listen. I know this on this day, it was especially hard for New York and everyone around the, the United States. I just want to say that I hope I can be as strong and as resilient as New York has been the past 20 years. Man, she's crushed personally at the time, and you saw how emotional she was at the end of that match. And from a personal standpoint, that was a really difficult day for her after an incredible two-week run in New York. But for her to have the poise, Jamie, and perspective to do that just a few days after her 19th birthday, hats off. Well done. Thank you for representing us so well, Layla Annie Fernandez. And I thought it was just a really great way as well for her to show her appreciation for the crowd there at Flushing Meadows, which had gotten behind her so much and really kind of adopted her and, and was cheering her on throughout the entire tournament. And I thought it really strengthened that connection and showed why she's so easy to root for because she is open and vulnerable and she has the poise and the maturity beyond her years. It was a great moment to end her, you know, disappointing results, but you still look at it and you take it in total and, and you add in the off the court element and it's just hard not to be, you know, so impressed with what she accomplished at the U S open. And I would say I was very impressed with the way that Emma Raducanu followed her because that's a tough act to follow quite yep. frankly. And I don't think that was Layla grandstanding whatsoever or trying to steal the moment away from Emma Raducanu, but she was very gracious in her victory, extremely complimentary of Layla as well, said, I hope we get to do this a lot more over the course of the next 10 years. Man, if you are a fan of women's tennis and you're the WTA, you are thrilled with what you saw from these two young women. They're not alone. It's not as though they stand heads and tails above the crowd, but these two teenagers meeting on that stage and conducting themselves the way they did, that's an exciting moment for women's tennis. And it bears mentioning again, I know we've mentioned it a couple of times, but Raducanu's story at this tournament is almost beyond belief. Like it almost sounds fake, right? To be the first qualifier ever at any major, any Grand Slam event, men or women in the open era, to make it to the final, to win, to never lose a set, to look dominant the entire way through. It sounds fake, but she did it. I have no idea what the future holds for her. But if it's anything like it looks this week, the future of tennis on the women's side, very, very bright with her and Layla Annie Fernandez. Well, and the other part of Raducanu's story is she was on this great run at Wimbledon. I don't know how many people know this or are paying attention to this because this story in isolation of her going from qualifier to U.S. Open champion is so incredible. Just a few months ago, Jamie, she's getting all this attention because of this run she's on over at Wimbledon in her home country. And yep. She starts hyperventilating in the middle of the match, and she has to she has to retire in that match because she's struggling with her breathing. And there were those wondering, well, you know, is it just the stage that got to her? What is it? And then she comes through this tournament without losing a set. Just a wild 2021 for her. Yeah, it really is. Again, the story almost sounds beyond belief when you lay it out, that she actually did that, and she actually went all the way on to win the U.S. Open. It sounded beyond belief for some Flames fans, maybe Canucks fans, with a signing that happened late last week. Eric Gabranson, he signs in Calgary for a shade under $2 million per season. As we said at the time, hey, good for you. You got that bag. But this caught a lot of people as a little bit surprising that 
Erica Branson was a guy that was targeted by the Flames toward the end of free agency here and that he was able to maybe get that contract at this point in his career. He was on the radio with our good buddies over at 960 and had this to say about the head coach's influence on signing him in Calgary. Yeah, um, well, I got a I got a call from Daryl Sutter, actually, um, at the beginning of free agency, and, and uh, you know, that one kind of stood out big time. Uh, we spent some time together in Anaheim during my time there and, and got along really well, and, and uh, you know, when the head coach calls you and, and uh, you know, really hopes that you can sign with them, it's, uh, it's hard to say, to say no to that. I mean, the expectations are, are definitely high with him. Um, you know, his, his position and, and the capacity he was in in Anaheim was, you know, just, just someone who you could bounce ideas with, you could kind of talk to, um, you know, who was watching your game with, uh, with a critical eye and, and um, you know, very upfront and honest about it and, and um you know, that's something that goes a lot of way with, with us at, at this level is, you know, just that, that direct, that direct mentality when it comes to talking to guys, um, you know, he was very kind about it and, and, um, you know, spent a lot of time with me and, and, uh, with a lot of ideas for me for my time in Anaheim. So, uh, when he called, it was, it was hard to look past that. There's a couple of takeaways here for me, Jenny. One. Daryl Sutter's calling a lot of people. Brad Richardson yeah. said the coach called him. <laughs> He's calling Erica Branson. I mean, if you're a free agent in Calgary that didn't get a phone call from Daryl Sutter, maybe you're feeling a little bit slighted here. It's like the scene in a, in a heist movie where he's putting the crew together, right? He's going through his contacts. He's like, all right, who do I need for this job? I need Brad Richardson. I need Eric and Branson. It's right. Have you crossed paths with Daryl Sutter? Were you a free agent this year? And did you not get a call? Oh, apparently he doesn't like your game very much because he went out of his way to recruit guys like Brad Richardson and Eric Goodbranson. And, you know, the moment all of these signings happen, right, we look at it and say, oh, that's a Daryl Sutter player. Good to have the confirmation that Daryl Sutter is right there with us. These are Daryl Sutter players. That and the fact that he's calling makes me wonder what phone he is using. Like, is he still using a landline or is <laughs> he just surprising the hell out of all of us? Does he have the most up-to-date iPhone that you can get and that he's super tech-savvy despite the way he portrays himself in the media? Like, I want to know what kind of phone Daryl Sutter has. That's that's another one of these things for me. I feel like he's got the old school. You know how, like, in in a kitchen people used to have, like, the phone, the landline on the wall, right? I oh, feel yeah. like that. that's what I'm picturing Daryl Sutter. Better. Like in his ranch house, in his kitchen, just standing there next to the phone, dialing Eric Goodbranson and asking him to come play for the Flames. Yeah, the wall-mounted rotary phone. And the question is, does it have the super long cord? Because at some point, yes. people said, well, I can't just be standing in the kitchen talking. I want to maybe sitting down in the living room. And I'm going to need the cord that extends all the way there. I mean... We're not crazy wealthy. We can't get a second phone that we're going to put in our living room and have another jack there. I need the extremely long rotary phone cord. Yeah, I I, th I think Daryl Sutter has probably sprung for the long cord at this point. I think I think he's gone for that. So he can, you know, sit down, have a bit of a lounge while he makes his phone calls. Also, if he's calling people like in the in the bank heist movie and calling the grizzled vets, is he calling Aaron Rodgers? Is that the look that Rodgers is going with right oh now? Oh, my goodness. Yeah, Rodgers looked like he just got out of prison or something. That's basically what he looked like. Maybe that's how he felt after getting out of the game against the Saints defense. But that was the look. If you had just shown somebody who didn't know anything about uh, the NFL or sports in general a picture of Aaron Rodgers in that moment, I think you would have got a lot, got a lot of, you know, 
I don't know, maybe a pawnbroker, maybe, you know, somebody who's done a little bit of time, a lot of a lot of votes like that. Yeah, if you said to just the average person on the street, is this man an NFL quarterback or was he one of the actors on Bruce Willis's crew in Armageddon? Like, what, which <laughs> which way would it have gone as far as public opinion? Yeah. Yeah, I think more to the actor, for sure. He did, did not look like the reigning NFL MVP. Let's put it that way. No, he certainly did not. Man, I mentioned Francisco Lindor off the top of the show today. You mentioned what happened with the Toronto Blue Jays. We'll put some of those numbers in perspective and dig down in what is an incredible race shaping up right now. And maybe a story because we're so fascinated by the AL race that is getting less tension than attention, I should say, than it deserves in Major League Baseball. It's all coming up next with Joe Siddle right here on Rental and Sermon with Jamie Dodd. I shouldn't be surprised by this, Jamie, because when I threw out how surprised I was at the size of Vasily Podkolzin's hands in a photo about 10 days ago, the text came fast and furious about people with big mitts and the number of people over the years you've encountered with big hands, former professional athletes. So I shouldn't be surprised at the volume of texts that have come in <laughs> about Daryl Sutter's phone and what model he might have, what type of phone it is, any of that. I shouldn't be surprised by any of it, should I? No, people have lots of thoughts about the Daryl Sutter yeah, phone situation. So no, I'm not surprised either. Yeah, I have lots of thoughts about it as well. And like someone <laughs> saying, give him a break. Of course, he has the long cord, and it's a first edition push button. It's not a rotary. Jonathan in Vancouver says, no chance. Sutter has two 90s-style Bluetooth earpieces that he's using as well. A lot of people weighing in on this. I want it to be one of two things when I find out what type of phone he has. I either want it to be that he's got the latest and that Daryl Sutter, despite the public persona he puts on, like he's on Twitch and he's gaming with people <laughs> around the planet and he's doing everything and that he's like the most tech-savvy person you've ever met in your life. Or I want it to be somewhere in between. I don't want it to be the old brick phone that people carried around in the 80s. Right. Hey, this is the first cell phone on the planet. I want it to be like a BlackBerry from like 2010 right. or like 2007 or like a a Razor, like a Motorola Razor flip phone. I want it to be one of those. Hey, Masai Ujiri was rocking the BlackBerry for a long time, so you know he'd be in good company there. I, I do like this text. This comes in 960-960, the Calgary inbox. He says, Daryl Sutter plays everyone like a finely tuned fiddle. He was actually one of the early adopters of analytics. Thus, he has best learned how to utilize them in conjunction with the eye test. But he sure plays the grizzled, aw shucks, rancher narrative to a T. He's often the smartest person in the room, but he does his best to not appear so. That wouldn't surprise me at all if all of that was true. If Daryl Sutter was the Kaiser Soze of the NHL and that he's playing us with everything he does at his press conferences and with the way he behaves, but he's actually a shark when it comes to analytics and tech uh, away from the cameras. I agree with the majority of that text, quite frankly, and I've said yep. it before. I have said it before that Daryl Sutter kind of plays the part, but every once in a while with the way he answers a question, you see what's really going on in Daryl Sutter's mind. I agree with that to a certain extent. And I would love to learn that he has like a burner social media account and that yeah. he throws things into the ether. Like I'd love to learn things like that. Keep those texts coming. 960, 650, 650. We're going to turn our attention to baseball now. Jamie, just to put into perspective what the Blue Jays did yesterday in winning the series finale against the Orioles 22 to seven. Yes, it's the Orioles. However, the Blue Jays outscored 14 of the 28 NFL teams that played on Sunday. Not over the weekend, just yeah. yesterday, Jamie. 
Yes, they hammered the Orioles. And yeah, okay, full caveat, it's the Orioles. They're awful. They look completely miserable out there. Their manager is being a clown on Friday. But still, you have that kind of offensive performance over a weekend. You deserve a lot of kudos. You are. And yet what happened yesterday, the 22 runs, I don't think it's the most impressive thing that Toronto did in the last three wins. We'll see what Joe Siddle thinks, former Major League catcher, current analyst of Major League Baseball and Blue Jays baseball as well. He joins us here today on Rinto and Cern with Jamie Dodd. Joe, thank you very much for doing this. How are you? Very good, guys. How are we doing today? We are doing well. Maybe not Blue Jays well, but we're doing pretty well out here on the west side of the country. So you tell me, the 11-10 win in the top of seven, the 11-2 win after being no hit for six innings in the second half of the double dip, or the 22 runs yesterday in that 22-7 thrashing, which is the most impressive for you? Well, the least impressive is yesterday. That was just a thrashing. <laughs> that was, holy cow. I mean, how do you put that even into words? They, they started early and just kept going. Anytime you come from behind, it's a wonderful thing. I thought the way things went down in game one of that doubleheader, and then what a perfect guy to come to the plate is George Springer. That's pretty impressive, but also when you no hit for six innings and you bring a guy back out there, you know, it's so frustrating to watch at times, I'm sure, for any viewer you're watching this lineup, and I can relate that hitting looks a lot easier on TV than it is in person, but he was kind of using a lot of sliders and guys to roll over, and you just didn't see a whole lot of adjusting happening. And then sure enough, to start that seventh inning, Vladdy takes a base hit the other way, like he can do. It's almost like he just hits it kind of where he wants to. <laughs> but then for Bo to go deep, I thought that was pretty special because when you're being no hit, it's very easy to think, and you already won game one of the doubleheader. It's very easy to think and feel like, okay, they got us this game. We'll get them tomorrow. I've been in dugouts like that. It's a, it's kind of a helpless feeling, and you do. You, it's very easy to cave in, and they did not. Vlad and Bo come up, and, and of course, the, the record inning was nuts. So I think, um, I think I'll go with that one. Friday is the only game this team has lost so far in the month of September. And despite everything that happened on the weekend, I can make an argument for that game or another. I think the most impressive win to me in all of this in September is the 11-10 come from behind win over the Oakland A's. I'm convinced that that kick-started this entire thing, even though it's not the first win of the month. Do you agree with me? Is it somewhere else? What would you point to? I think if this team makes it to the postseason, we will be looking back at that Friday night game against the A's and sure kickstarts. I'm not, I'm not sure. Like I'm a big believer in momentum and, and that feel and that vibe in the clubhouse that guys have. And when you start winning and they're on a nice roll right now, especially after Baltimore and they're coming today and you do, you arrive at the ballpark at the clubhouse and everybody's in a good mood and you've got this vibe that nobody can beat you. Like you're almost invincible right now. Let's go do our thing. However, in saying that one thing we've continued to hear from Charlie, from the players, anybody coaches that we hear from, there's, there's this real even keel, and I think that's very, very important in this game because as good as things are going right now, Tampa Bay Rays in for three days. They could lose two out of three. Does it mean the season's over? Absolutely not. But uh, they're running into a good team right here. They're catching them maybe at a good time. They've been swinging the bats well, but the, the pitching has not been so much. But that, that kickstart on the Friday night against Oakland, uh, you have to look back at it, uh, I think, as something that maybe got things going. But – I'm still not necessarily a big believer in one event turning a season around. I think this was a pretty darn good baseball team with a very, very, very good lineup. 
that you know nobody can explain the weekend in Baltimore, but that has really kind of taken over. Remember the rotation had really picked up at Sox pretty good there, and I think it was I don't know, it was Robbie Ray or somebody, or Marcus Simeon maybe even saying like, now we have to get back. And the, the lineup was going through a little wall there, and they've done that. But I think it was I don't want to say it was expected, but you almost expect this lineup not to slump for too long because they are pretty darn deep. Well, and Joe, you talked a little bit about the the importance of momentum there and how it, it really is a thing and, and the vibes in the clubhouse get, get going and then everyone just kind of starts hitting. And, you know, we've heard that a lot in baseball, right? The idea that good hitting is contagious. And, man, we've seen it, or at least it seems like we've seen it with this team over the last few weeks where, you know, you go back into August, a lot of guys were in a little bit of a slump. Now all of a sudden it seems like everybody in the lineup is red hot what does that feel like in in the clubhouse, in the dugout, when, okay, everyone is hitting? Like, what's your what's the vibe in the dugout when that's the situation, when he just feels like everybody is going to come up with a clutch hit almost every time they go up to the plate? Well, it's two extremes. And the, the first example you gave, remember when everybody was not hitting, and it's just so weird sometimes to see almost an entire lineup go quiet at the same time. It's It's just eerie. And then you're seeing what they're doing right now where everybody's rolling. And it doesn't matter if you give Valera a start or Lamb or whoever it is, everybody's contributing. So it it is a great vibe. And uh, while not ever taking anything away from what they did offensively in Baltimore, that is uh, major league's worst pitching staff. And I do think things will be very different moving forward here. But it's, uh, it's a great vibe because everyone feels like you're part of it. And, you know, I've been in lineups where, you know, you score 15 runs and you go over four and you're that one guy that didn't get the hit. And I was looking at the lineup yesterday as the game was going on here saying, okay, let's see, everybody got one, everybody got one, <laughs> because it usually happened. But it did. <laughs> These guys were all contributing. It is. It's one of those things you're kind of like, geez, we have 14 runs on 17 hits here and I'm over three with two strikeouts. I got one more AB coming or whatever the case may be. But that's a great feeling. But, you know, as great as it is, again, coming to the ballpark today, it's, it's Maybe a little cliche. It's it is truly a new day. Like these guys know what can happen when they come to the ballpark today. They might they might get three hits tonight. Like it can happen. That's just baseball, and that's why I don't necessarily believe in any one moment springing you to the postseason. You know, when you go back like a month or whatever the case may be. So they're just going to take each day, and uh, today is a new day that you prepare. I was going to say prepare for a starting pitcher, but of course you're going to get an opener from the Rays. But you prepare for what you're going to face as a lineup. They do all their prep work. But, you know, they do the same stuff every day, I'm sure, guys. You, you prepare every day to win a Major League Baseball game. Uh, they lose ball, the Baltimore game Friday night. Uh, they, it's not that they weren't trying. <laughs> it happened. Yeah. The, the other pitcher sometimes pitches well, or you don't have your vibe, or, you know, I would never use it as an excuse, nor with the Blue Jays, but they're coming in from New York. It was a late night. My understanding is they get into Baltimore about 2.30 in the morning. It's, that matters. It, it's, it's not an excuse at all. It's the reality of, of professional sports and travel days. And I, I'm sure you guys feel the same way I do. If I went to bed at 3.30 in the morning and got up and had to play a baseball game that night, probably wouldn't be at our best. What does George Springer mean to this lineup? Because, you know, I know he was he was out of the lineup for a few days there and they, they kept winning. But he hits the big home run in the first uh, game of the doubleheader on Saturday. He's had a number of clutch hits, and it just seems like when he's in the lineup, I don't know if it's just because it's that one extra really good hitter in the lineup that kind of has a domino effect for the other hitters, or if it's because of his leadership, his presence, whatever it is. But it seems like he really is the kind of the, the finishing piece for this Jays team. 
It's a good way of putting it because when you put him at the top of the lineup, I mean, obviously this team can't succeed without him, um, kind of like yesterday, <laughs> but you put Bo in the leadoff spot. Um, I think when you put him up there because of who he is, because of his status, because of how his teammates look at them, and I am sure Simeon and Vladdy and Bo and Teoska, they look at him almost like we do, like this guy is unreal. So there's this, I've always said it's like a sense of calm having him at the top of the lineup because basically you go, George, you get us going, you're our guy, and then everybody just kind of follows suit. And I think what can happen if you play over a period of time without a superstar like that, you can still have success, but guys got to kind of alter their roles a little bit. Now, you put Bo in the leadoff spot, do you think he's going to hit any differently? Probably not. He's not going to all of a sudden start taking pitches, right? We've seen that. But there is a there is a, when I say a sense of calm, I remember talking to Justin Morneau a lot about this when he hit behind Joe Maurer, and he said it wasn't so much when you get moved around in the lineup, like if you're hitting second or third or fourth, it's more about who you're following. Like when he was following Joe Maurer, that was really critical. It's like they had that kind of feel, that vibe, because they pitched him a lot like they did the guy in front of him. So that kind of stuff is more important. So when you get this consistency where Springer's at the top and Simeon knows he's following George, and then Vladdy is following Simeon. So, of course, I don't know if I'm a pitcher or a catcher. I'm going after Simeon because I don't want to see Vladdy. I think that's got a little to do with Simeon's phenomenal year. And then you got after Vladdy, you got Bo. So all these different weapons and different styles. You know, Bo's the free swinging, but you don't know what to throw him because if he's looking for it, he might crush you. Okay, you get through those four, and then here, number five, you got Teoscar. <laughs> so there's just this uh, the consistency, I think, really helps all of these hitters settle into their roles. As I said, it's not that they can't hit if you have to shuffle those spots or move them around. But, man, having George at the top, I, I would say, yeah, it's a good word to say it kind of completes this lineup. Because regardless of any lineup you look at, once you get down to six and seven, eight, and nine, they're going to probably move around, and some of them will be part-time type players or catcher, backup catcher, that sort of thing. But those top fives have been unbelievable. Yeah, I'm not sure Charlie Montoyo is going to say you complete me to George Springer. But, hey, you just put that visual <laughs> in my head. Joe, Joe Siddle, former Major League catcher, current Major League Baseball analyst, joining us here today on Rinto and Sermon with Jamie Dodd. It wasn't playoff baseball last night, but it kind of felt like it. Both New York teams wish it was because that would mean they're in the postseason. And right now they're both on the outside looking in. We don't get theater like that all the time. Give me some perspective on how special that performance from Francisco Lindor was last night. Well, I had it on a little bit last night, and I happened to see the whole the home run and the whistling and Lindor accusing them. And then when Stanton hit his, he slowed down around second base, had a few words with Lindor. It was fun. Um, you know, I, I think of things like that. And I think the important thing to for me in that, I'm just kind of looking at this, watching it, how it's going down. And, you know, you're accusing the other team. You know, we had that Robbie Ray incident in Baltimore the other mm-hmm. night, too with the Orioles manager, but it's all about how you, how you like, let's not kid ourselves. Guys, guys have been stealing signs for a hundred years, right? It's just more so how you relate them to the hitter. So if it's a runner on second, picking something up, you want to be fairly subtle because you don't want the other team to know that you've got them. But if, if there were whistles coming from the dugout, uh, kind of like a trash can, I mean, it's kind of loud. You're probably going to notice. And that's where I think maybe, you know, in Robbie Ray's case, maybe he heard some, some, some hollering and last night they heard some whistling so to me it's just not a smart way of relaying if you want to be smart just be a little bit more discreet about it and you can have his signs all night if he's tipping his pitches so i think you just got to be smarter about it when rather than whistling and i think everything's fair game yeah as long as you're not planting cameras out in the outfield and then relaying signs on apple watches and stuff like that that's going a little too far 
But hey, if a pitcher's tipping pitches and you guys got them, just be more subtle in the way you relay your signs to the hitter, and then you're you're set because you should tee off on them. New York Yankees, as mentioned on the outside, Boston and Toronto deadlocked right now for wild card spots in the AL. Handicap this race for me, and we can't forget that Seattle and Oakland are still within touching distance. Yeah, it's just uh, you know never say die, uh, Oakland. There, I don't. I've, Seattle's always been a team for me. I've never almost even considered them, and maybe I'm disrespecting them too much. <laughs> but I, um, I, I think with the way Oakland is, they seem to be magical around this time of year. They're in a bit of a rut right now. That's the team I could see going on on a little bit of a run. So I wouldn't count them out yet. The Yankees and Red Sox. I mean, my goodness, the, the Red Sox I've been saying since May, I can't believe what they're doing and they're going to fall out of it. And they never did. So I was wrong there, but I just, I just don't know if they, they seem like their pitching is on fumes and it just doesn't seem like they're going to make it. Then they had their COVID issues. They finally get sale back. It just seems like it's one hit after another there. And then the Yankees, they went on that great run, and I thought, uh-huh, here we go. We've been bashing the Yankees all season long, saying that they're just they're done, they're done here, they're right back into it. But then they went right backwards again. You know, it's like five steps forward, six steps back. And, um, again, I don't think you can count them out necessarily. Anytime you got a Cole, and I know it wasn't at his best against the Blue Jays when they faced him, but – it, it's still the Yankees, uh, man. When, when they're when they're bad, they look. I mean, any team when they're bad, they look really bad. But it's when you see the judges and Stanton's and those kinds of guys when they're not on, they can look really bad. But the problem is that switch can turn any time, and if you catch them for three days when that switch is in the upright position, you could be in big trouble. So the Yankees are always eerie to me. Yeah, I agree with you, Joe. It does feel like they, they might still have another run left in them. And when those bats all get going, then, as we saw not that long ago, they can reel off 12, 13 in a row pretty easily as well. The team, of course, that does not have to concern itself uh, with this playoff race is the Tampa Bay Rays. And that's who the Blue Jays are going to play next starting today. I know a lot of fans have probably been looking at these two series with Tampa with a certain amount of dread on the calendar because we know how tough it is for the Jays to play against the Rays. Look, other than the fact that Tampa is just a really, really good team, what is it about that team that gives the Jays, seems to give the Jays so much trouble? I think they are the masters of matchups and putting people in great spots, and their roster construction is so good that they get every little advantage they can get. I am sure we'll see a ton of left-handed hitters in the lineup tonight against Alec Manoa because he is excellent against righties, but he has his struggles against lefties. So Kevin Cash has got all kinds of lefties, and he's got a switch hitter or two. I, I wouldn't doubt he sees six or seven left-handers in the lineup just because he can do the Cash can do that. And when you have that type of flexibility, and then you, when you do that, you've got other guys that can come off the bench so that if, let's say, you go to a Tim Mesa, then he can spin around and grab a righty off of his bench, and sometimes they're pretty good righties. Like, it's just a really deep team. And then pitching, uh, you know, of course, they I know lately they, they've been – a little bit rough, but this is one of the top pitching teams in baseball. They always are. And we hear Charver say it a million times. He came from there and they're all about pitching and defense. And he's right. Like that's, it's so true. You can have a great lineup, but you can't be 14th in the American league of pitching, right? You, you have to be somewhat solid. And, and the Rays had done it for a while with great pitching and, and the lineup was just merely average, right? But now they're a really good lineup. And they might do it different ways. I know they strike out a lot, so that's interesting. But they also walk. They slug the ball. They hit homers. So they just have a lot of varying weapons to get you. And, you know, it's not dissimilar to the Blue Jays' offense because that's kind of 
where they've gone to, but they just maybe not as diversified, right? The Blue Jays, sure, they've got a couple lefties now that they've added in, in Dickerson and Jake Lamb and all, but not that, you know, I'm talking more of that solid everyday player, whether it's that everyday third baseman I think the Blue Jays could use next year that's a left-handed hitter, and it might be uh, uh, an outfielder or whatever the case may be, but to have that at your disposal each and every game. Of the three division leaders in the AL, Tampa, the Chicago White Sox, and the Houston Astros, Joe, who do you think has the best chance to represent the AL in the World Series this year? Tampa's going through a little rut right now, guys, but, man, don't count them out. I just think that's a team, and, you know, I just talked about their offense and how it's much improved and how they hit the long ball. And you know what happens in the postseason? We see home runs that win games because you're facing good pitching, and when you're facing good pitching, it's hard to string hits together. So I'll take any team that can then can hit the long ball, and uh, and the pitching. As I said, they're going through it right now, but I think teams do that. You know, the Blue Jays have done. Every team goes through those ruts where guys are having, whether it's fatigue or you know, we always say dog days of August. Well, maybe it's spilled into September for the Rays. But if, if they can just gather guys, and they've had a ton of injuries, but if they can just get that second win. I mean, they're cruising. That's the joy of being in cruise control right now. So I think it's the Rays. I just think it's the Rays because of who they are. We see them so much. They do it so many ways. And I, I can't imagine that the pitching staff is not going to get that second wind and finish strong and head right into October. All right. You said great pitching, so I have to ask a follow-up, even though it's in the other league. It's Max Scherzer. He was virtually unhittable on the weekend he got to 3,000 strikeouts he was pitching well earlier this season but give me an idea of where he's at as a former major league catcher and you watch Max Scherzer right now what stands out more than anything it's just it's Max Scherzer it's that fiery did you I was I actually just got home from from working our Blue Jays game and I turned on the TV because we'd gone to that game and on on Sportsnet so I turned it on and I, I literally turned on five minutes before he struck out Hosmer for the record. But if you guys saw it, it, there was like this quick standing O. He backed up, he tipped his cap, and then he was like back on the pitching rubber. It was like, okay, enough of that. Let's go. We got a baseball game here. And that's just so, that's who he is, right? He's just so game on. Love his fiery attitude, the way he pitches. And we've seen it in the postseason. I mean, it was so fun watching him when he was with the Nats winning that World Series. Because, I, yeah, I was in Detroit. Uh, just working with them when he was there. And, yeah, just uh, just a fiery competitor. And, of course, he backs it up with tremendous, tremendous talent. But that's what I think I, I love most about him. And, and, yeah, what a what a trade deadline deal for the Dodgers. My goodness. And uh, you, look at, you look at their big three, it's hard to go against it, especially with their lineup. But that's what October baseball is all about. Well, what I was going to say is it's hard to believe they're in second place. Like, it's hard to believe with a run differential of more than 250 runs that they're second place in their own division. You know, I don't hear and see the Giants a whole lot. And I just keep all year I've been saying, this, is this team for real? Are they for real? Is this for real? Well, it's middle of September now, so I guess they're for real, right? It's unbelievable. I would but say Dodgers, so. Dodgers going to have to play a wild card game. <laughs> Crazy crazy and who knows maybe they catch him but it's fun to watch there's nothing better than baseball in september when your team is in it the jays for a lot of our listeners are that team it's a lot of fun joe thank you very much for doing this look forward to seeing you and hearing you again very very soon the only thing better will be october baseball guys thanks I enjoyed let's go it. yeah let's go joe siddle joining us here today former major league catcher 
and Major League Baseball analysts as well. I misquoted. I said over 250. The Dodgers are closing in on plus 250. They're plus 234 in run differential. They're two and a half games out of their division lead. The San Francisco Giants have surprised everybody this year. I want to go back to the Max Scherzer numbers. I didn't quote any of them there because I didn't want to waste Joe's time with that. He knows them, but many of our listeners may not. So his most recent outing, he was great. He gets the 3,000 strikeouts. One hit over eight innings, nine Ks, no walks, and he only threw 92 pitches. <laughs> Jamie, he's a perfect eight for eight since being traded to the Dodgers. Eight games, eight wins. He's thrown 51 innings, only 29 hits, 72 strikeouts, five walks, and five earned runs in 51 innings. About as good as a trade deadline acquisition can be for your team. Like everything you could have possibly hoped for and more for Max Scherzer for the Dodgers. And yeah, it's, it's remarkable that they're already so good. They go get a guy like that. They still might not win their division, but they have so many p- pitching options that they can throw out there in a one game playoff wild card playoff right it's still one game it still feels tough for them to end up there but he just gives them another option if they want to go that way and it really is it's one of the most impactful trade deadline acquisitions i can remember in major league baseball which numbers which players which teams impressed us the most and who was on the other side of that from the nfl's opening weekend we will hit that next want you involved 960 960 650 650 you've got it on rental and sermon with jamie dodd